You're listening to WJMSRadio.com, where radio is reimagined. The Fired Up Show starts right now. And welcome, everybody. Welcome to Fired Up, right here on WJMSRadio.com, where radio is reimagined. This is Steve. I host the show each week. We're uh, running down through the month of December as we head to the end of 2021. And hopefully, uh, I don't know about you, but uh, we can close the door in 2021 and I will be quite happy. But, you know, we've still got to keep moving forward and go into 2022. Uh, So let's get it started. This is the show each week where we talk about the mechanics of the political system here in this country. And as always, we started off with a recap of where we are with respect to the COVID pandemic uh, that we have been uh, involved with here in the United States for the last two plus years. And uh, let's get the uh, numbers updated. We currently have and we have a milestone that we have crossed 50 million uh, cases which have been reported. Uh, We have 797,000 people who have died from the disease, and we have 481 million uh, doses of uh, the vaccine that have been administered, and that accounts for 58.6% of the U.S. adult population who was fully vaccinated. So that's a positive light in the ongoing battle we have with the COVID disease. And um, just as a side note, it, it is probably notable that as we look back on the COVID pandemic with the lens of history, that we're probably going to see that there are more people who actually were infected and did die uh, from the early days of this disease uh, that either we didn't keep records on or the records were incomplete or whatever. But it's likely these numbers are going to go up Uh, by some jumps as we uh, move down the road and get a better perspective with history. Um, So, you know, it it is an an ongoing struggle. As we brought up last last week, the Omicron uh, variant is taking hold in in our country. Uh, We're now seeing it, I believe, in 19 states uh, across the United States. Uh, It is definitely affecting people however on I guess what could be a positive side it seems to be and keep in mind caveat the information you hear about this new variant with the fact that we are only uh, about a month into really seriously tracking it in this country Uh, it may have been here for more than that and we'll learn that as we go down the road and science gets better at identifying and, and segregating the various uh, COVID cases into their, you know, relevant variant, whether it's the original variant, the Delta variant, or now the Omicron. But uh, we will we will see going down the road um, that the Omicron illness seems to be, and I'm holding up air quotes here, seems to be a uh, less uh, call it vicious. Uh, the the symptoms of the illness uh, seem to be uh, less of a debilitating factor than either the original or the Delta. Now, caveat that I'm not a scientist, I'm not a doctor, but according to what I have heard from sources, you know, in uh, the federal government, the federal uh, uh, health administration, the, the CDC, 
and so forth that the symptoms of people are experiencing who are infected with the Omicron variant don't seem to be as severe as what we saw with uh, either the Delta variant or with the, uh, the original uh, version of the COVID disease, which came out you know, in 2019 and 2020. So you know, I, I guess that's a plus. Um, but you know, if, if you happen to be one of the ones who have contracted d- the disease in any of its forms, um, I, I don't think you take a great deal of pleasure in knowing the fact that if you're infected with the Omicron, that it is, quote, less, effect, less um, infectious than the previous two variants that we've been reporting. Not really, you know, something you want to you know, get a marching band and go down Main Street about. So, you know, the, the key is, as with everything, as we've been talking about now going into two years, that we need to follow the advice of the medical community, follow the advice of the scientists, do the practical, important things that we need to do in order to keep ourselves safe from the virus and also keep those around us, our loved ones, uh, safe as well. So um, just more information. We'll keep you posted as uh, progress is made against the um, the Omicron variant. I will say that I have seen news reports uh, that are, are starting to surface now that are saying that a lot of the uh, booster shots, uh, we've talked about this, boosters are now authorized uh, for um, everyone, you know, uh, adults age uh, down through, uh, I believe down to 11, 12 year olds, uh, all the way up through adults are eligible now to get boosters if they have been completely vaccinated or have had the disease and it has been six months since they completed the, the inoculation or six months since they've had the virus. Um, check with your local health officials about that and see if you are eligible to get a booster shot because what is being reported, uh, at least as we are seeing preliminarily here, is that the boosters uh, not only increase your protection against coronavirus in general, but increase the protection against the Omicron virus uh, as well, uh, even though it is, quote, a relatively new, close quote, uh, variant. The booster shots uh, in conjunction with a you know, well-functioning immune system and having you know, fully vaccinated or Uh, having the antibodies from having contracted and uh, come through the COVID um, uh, disease uh, gives you the greatest chance of having the minimal impact of this variant on your system. Uh, It uh, eliminates to nearly zero the, the hospitalization rate and also eliminates to just about zero the death rate from the Omicron variant. Again, you know, take it with a grain of salt. You need to make sure that you're doing everything that you can do to you know, work with the, the doctors, work with the medical community, do what needs to be done. So, you know, just more advice. We've been talking about this now, as I said, uh, going into two years. So we should be all well-versed in what we need to do. All right. Um, 
So let's let's get off into the the news. Um, let's uh, let's talk a little bit, and I'm going to introduce uh, this first segment. Uh, we'll talk. You know, uh, I'll give you the the front end, and then we'll we'll come back after a quick break and talk about it in more detail. Uh, but a, an article came out of the Associated Press uh, on December 12th. And uh, basically, this one is reporting uh, that Governor Gavin Newsom of California is pledging to empower private citizens to, in, to enforce a ban on the manufacture and sale of assault weapons in the state of California. And he's going to use the mechanism and authority that conservative lawmakers in Texas uh, use or are, are using to outlaw most abortions in that state, uh, you know, beyond the six-week threshold and so forth. Um, you know, and if you recall, when we talked about the Texas uh, abortion law in previous shows, um, I did bring out that we would see this type of approach used on a range of additional conservative uh, subjects going forward. And here we have uh, one of the first ones, um, although it's not a conservative uh, uh, subject because by and large, most conservatives, and again, air quotes around that, um, actually are opposed to restrictions on uh, guns and, and gun-related issues uh, in most of the states in the country. Uh, this is a democratic uh, initiative, but it is using the conservative playbook that was used in Texas for the abortion ban that uh, we've talked about numerous times and is you know, being debated and will be fought in the courts with no doubt uh, pretty soon. Uh, so just by a little bit of history, um, California banned the manufacture and sale of assault-style assault weapons uh, many years ago, decades ago. Um, that, that ban precluded making or selling uh, assault-style weapons and, and in some cases the accessories that go along with it, uh, bump stocks, you know, large-scale ma large magazines, and, and so forth. Well, a federal judge overturned that ban back in June, ruling it was unconstitutional and which, you know, of course, immediately drew the ire of the state's Democratic leaders uh, by, as the judge put in, in his argument for, over, for overturning the ban, he said that uh, compared an AR-15 rifle to a Swiss army knife uh, as, quote, good for both home and battle. And, you know, the while the ban is still in a place, while the appeal process is going forward, uh, you can see here with this statement, again, where this judge is comparing an, an automatic rifle with a Swiss army knife um, as, as a good home uh, tool as well as a good tool for battle. Um, you can make that you can make of that as as you may. I personally um, just kind of 
have to give that to side eye saying you know the last time that i couldn't find a can opener it didn't occur to me to go into my gun locker and and pull out my ar-15 in order to open up a can of beans for dinner but you know you get the idea um so as i said earlier and, I, and we'll, we'll talk about this when we we come back after after the break uh, the california democratic uh legislature uh, and the Democratic Attorney General uh, want to pass a law that would let private citizens sue to enforce California's ban on assault weapons. Um, Newsom, Governor Newsom has said people who sue could win up to $10,000 per violation plus other costs and attorney's fees against, quote, anyone who manufactures, distributes, or sells an assault weapon in California. Uh, you know, Newsom justifies this by saying that if the, if the most efficient way to keep these devastating weapons off our streets is to add the threat of pi private lawsuits, we should do just that. So, you know, as I said, and, you know, we're going we're gonna to take a quick break, uh, uh, segment break here, and when we come back, we're going to dig into this a little bit and uh, talk about uh, what this means in terms of not only the California uh, assault weapons situation and the, the abortion battle in Texas, but uh, I want to dive in a little bit and kind of talk about whether this is going to become the new weapon of choice in the battle between uh, so-called conservative and so-called liberal uh, policies in this country. Uh, you're listening to Fired Up right here on WJMSRadio.com. This is Steve. We'll be right back after the short break. And we're back, continuing in our discussion on the uh, law proposed by California Governor Gavin Newsom uh, to uh, allow for individual citizens uh, to sue anyone with regard to the manufacture, uh, sale, or distribution of assault-style weapons in the state of California. This law, as we were talking about, is modeled on the law in Texas that seeks to uh, set a limit on abortions in that state and allows for private citizens to sue anyone who aids or abets in a, a woman having an abortion beyond six weeks in that state. Uh, we've talked about that uh, in past episodes. Uh, you need only go back to our archive and go back to the uh, episodes in the high end of the 90s that you'll see or we'll be able to hear those. Um, one of the things, you know, with this law that Governor Newsom is proposing is obviously it's going to have to go through the state legislature before it can become a law. Uh, and as of uh, today, with you know, the recording of this show, California's legislature is not in session right now. 
uh, although it's scheduled to reconvene in January. Uh, it should be noted that uh, it normally takes, according to the information I've, I've received, it normally takes about eight months for a new bill to make it through the uh, legislative process uh, again, and that's that's barring anything uh, of a special circumstance nature or emergency um, uh, requirement or so forth. Um, and obviously, uh, this this ban is not going to go through uncontested. Uh, already, uh, Republican state senators such as Brian Dahl, uh, a Republican state senator from Bieber, California, uh, would oppose the plan. But, you know, they're, they're saying that California's Democratic-dominated state legislature said that the proposal uh, would likely pass. Uh, he, is, he has categorized the proposal as mostly a stunt for Newsom uh, to uh, win back favor with his progressive base of voters, uh, you know, and even went so far as to say it is part of a setup for a possible run by Newsom for president uh, in the future. And, you know, one of the things that uh, Senator Dahl is quoted as saying is the right to bear arms is different than the right to have an abortion. The right to have an abortion is not a constitutional amendment. So I think he's way off base, uh, Dahl said. I think he's just using it as an opportunity, quote, to grandstand. Um, you know, and you know, the, the argument can be made that, yes, the, the Second Amendment addresses uh, the right of citizens to keep and bear arms. Um, there is no equivalent amendment in the Constitution that addresses, you know, the, uh, a woman's right uh, to an abortion, even though there is uh, law on the books, uh, there is precedent and in, in what is known as uh, stare decisis or decided law that uh, Roe v. Wade and um, you know, the bills that have come up to support Roe v. Wade, like Casey, uh, give the legal right to an abortion uh, to women in, in this country uh, at a federal level even though many states have enacted uh, restrictions, you know, as we've talked about over the course of many, many shows uh, on this program. So, you know, I think we are also going to have similar discussions as this uh, debate over automatic weapons in California uh, begins to uh, pan itself out and we see what exactly the uh, the proposal is, what the restrictions or what the rules would be, and so on and so forth. But either way, it raises some very, very interesting questions uh, that uh, we are going to see debated uh, not only along the lines of the, the potential ban on assault-style weapons uh, in California and perhaps if successful in other places, time will tell, but also, as we've talked about on this show, the application of this uh, people's court or people's uh, exercise of the citizens' arrest process and laws revolving around that uh, to enforce a, a uh, law 
required by one portion of the, the state government or another. Uh, the interesting thing here is that it bypasses just about all intervention by the uh, federal court system. Normally, when a, a law is challenged, uh, it is challenged with the naming of an individual, uh, an organization, uh, and or you know, a, a group of individuals. For example, uh, normally if someone were going to challenge a, the abortion law, they would name in their, their suit to challenge it, they would name the Secretary of State or the government, uh, the governor rather, or, or some state official as part of that lawsuit. The Texas law uh, eliminates that because it is purely a citizen action. It is a, a, a private lawsuit, essentially, that does not involve the government. Therefore, it circumvents uh, any rules or laws uh, that the federal government has in place uh, to regulate the administration of a policy. So under this, this law in Texas, uh, it basically circumvents uh, the requirements of Roe versus Wade uh, as supported by the requirements of Casey versus Planned Parenthood uh, and you know, purely leaves it in the purview of the civilian court. So as we now look in California, as this uh, assault weapons uh, legislation moves forward, uh, we will likely see again that there will be lawsuits, but they will not be lawsuits against uh, the state government in California or Gavin Newsom in particular uh, and so forth, simply because they are essentially one citizen suing another citizen. So the, the state, you know, to, to coin a phrase, doesn't have a nickel in the fight because it is not a, a suit against a government entity. Uh, so that will be interesting to see how this fleshes itself out, how it plays out, and what impact it's going to have on other areas of the law. Uh, that you know we we have struggled with controversial uh, decisions on in the past, you know, and and you know voting rights comes to mind, um, you know, uh, equal uh, equal representation, uh, you know, uh, equal pay is another good example. All of these contentious issues are ones that may end up uh, having this civilian. Uh, the civilian lawsuit approach taken, and it will be interesting to see what this means for the application of civil law in this country uh, when it, it essentially circumvents the governmental role in managing this law by moving the complainants to the civilian ranks rather than uh, civilian versus you know, government entity or one government entity or non-governmental uh, organization against another, etc., etc. So we will keep track on this one and we will let you know how it proceeds and uh, we'll keep you posted.
All right, uh, let's take our mid-show break. Uh, you're listening to WJMSRadio.com. This is the show Fired Up right here every Monday where we talk about the political uh, machine going on, what it means for you, what it means for me. So we're going to take a quick break, and we're going to talk a little bit in the break about some exciting things coming to the Fired Up show uh, as we round down or wind down the year 2021 and move into 2022. Uh, we've got some exciting things that uh, we're working on, and hopefully you'll, you'll feel the same way. As always, if you have questions or comments about the show, uh, we ask and invite you to communicate with us using our email address at firedupradio at yahoo.com. So send your comments, uh, praise, complaints, uh, what your thoughts are, uh, any uh, other information you want, and uh, let's have a dialogue on it. All right, we'll pick it up right after the break, right here on WJMSRadio.com. Things are getting intense, using up my sixth sense. Thought you had us figured, I can't use me at your expense. They be on that pretense, we be on some defense. If you in a past tense, you could keep your two cents. I don't wanna be another target on a headless. All my people running around the city like some misfits. So I'm steady praying for my brothers like a wish list. Can I trust a soul? They gon' turn on you the quickest. Damn, there's so much going on in this world we call our home. They've been looting and protesting, trying to get it far home. Ain't nobody got us like we got us. Streets is in the frenzy, you see the riots. Stand up for a cause, or you die for one of yours. Ain't no universal laws, they just want to sabotage. Rolling with my entourage, and they tell us be safe. But they got our hands behind us while we down up on our face. It don't make no sense, no. It felt like a death, no. How we supposed to raise our sons, how we supposed to get through. Feeling really stressful, years of being dreadful. How could we be careful when we ain't really careful? Therefore, all the youths need a good mentor. Yes, Lord, all the years, this we in. There's no cure. All the cops screaming f- 10 for what for? Government always trying to send, so we at war. Yeah, we black, but we really called Moors. Born poor. All we care about is Jordan Concords. Looking stars. Why you taking things that's not yours? All boy. That ain't no way yet on the George Floyd. Stay on point. Half America is really unemployed. We annoyed. Killing people with a state of paranoia. Can't avoid it. All these business burned down and destroyed. No insurance. Think my people kind of missing what's important. Yeah, stand up for your rights. Yeah, we putting up a fight. They don't want us out at night, so they gave us curfew. It's like jumping out the plane with no f- parachute. Don't shoot, hands up, but they still gonna do it. Here we know and probably like, man, what y'all doing? Need to come together, all of us, and start a revolution. Yeah, discover more solutions, overthrow the constitution, stop the looting, stop the shooting. We've been living in confusion. I get it intense, using up my sixth sense. Thought you had us figured, I can't use me at your expense. On that pretense, we be on some defense. If you in a past tense, you could keep your two cents. I don't wanna be another target on a headless. All my people running around the city like some misfits. So I'm steady praying for my brothers like a wish list. Can I trust a soul? They gon' turn on you the quickest.
And we're back. Welcome back to Fire It Up. All right, uh, let's get back into our discussion for uh, this Monday, this this today. And uh, wanted to retouch on a subject that I know I've been talking about uh, over the course of the year, over the course of, of more than a year. Uh, the election in Georgia, which created just a shockwave of uh, reaction around not only the country but the world, where even in the face of you know restrictions and uh, voter suppression tactics and and disenfranchisement uh, strategies that were put in place uh, by the Republican-led government of the state of Georgia, uh, the electorate came through and actually uh, elected two Democratic senators, giving control of the Senate to the Democratic Party here in this country and essentially turned uh, the state of Georgia from reddish to more blue-ish, um, you know, and, you know, powered. It was part of the effort that uh, put Joe Biden over the top to become president of the United States in 2020. Uh, but, and there, there is a huge comma, but that we're going to talk about right here, uh, since that uh, result has been put into the books, uh, the Republican legislature, the Republican Party uh, has been moving forward with sweeping changes um, to the political structure. That is how elections are handled, how they're managed, who is in control of them and what uh, elements uh can be addressed by the Republican Party uh, going forward. And really, they have focused their efforts on uh, four of the largest counties uh, in Georgia, uh, all of which happen to be uh, in and around the Atlanta area, Metro Atlanta. And those are Fulton, Gwinnett, Cobb, and DeKalb. Uh, you'll probably want to make note of these counties. We're going to be hearing about them and talking about them and looking at them quite a bit as we move through the year heading toward the, uh, the midterms in 2022 and then again in 2024 as we look at the next national cycle uh, of elections. Uh, one of the things that's going to play heavily into it is the... Uh, redrawn congressional maps, which have been brought out um, and and packaged up for the governor's signature. Uh, governor Kemp is expected to sign those uh, soon. Uh, no specific date has been announced, but the anticipation is that that will occur soon. And what's going to happen and, and you should take note of this as well, because you'll see this in many states around the country, is certain districts, and they, they are not just Democratic districts that you will see this occur in, because Democrats control the process in, in several states around the country as well, and they're doing the same thing. But here's, here's the way the game is played. You have a hem heavily... Uh, a populated county of one party or another, let's say for sake of argument, let's keep it discussing about Georgia, and let's say we're talking about a heavily Democratic county. 
such as Cobb County in, in Georgia. Um, what will happen and what you will see these redistricting committees do is they will divide up this county and allocate portions of it to a neighboring uh, county where there is a Republican presence, uh, effectively diluting the strength of a, a Democratic or a single party block of votes in that county. This is the way this, this game gets played. Uh, you have a, uh, a county or you have a, yeah, or, or district that is heavily uh, locked with one party over the other. Uh, and what will happen is the redistricting committees will divide that county up and allocate portions of it to neighboring counties where the, the other party uh, may have, uh, you know, more votes and, and so forth. Essentially, they eliminate um, one uh, of the party strongholds and they are going to change that in, in, the, in the, the sense of Cobb County. They're changing that to become four congressional districts out of one. Uh, and those four districts are going to be less uh, favorable to Democratic candidates and even in this case will force two Democratic representatives to run against each other. So, you know, what we're seeing here is the idea of, you know, essentially uh, setting just another obstacle of uh, voter disenfranchisement, uh, vote suppression, and, and so forth in place uh, using the laws that are on the books to do it. Uh, this is not an, an illegal process. It is a process that is well-defined, has been well-defined uh, for many years, and has been used frequently uh, over the years by both parties uh, against the other. Uh, for example, uh, as we talk about Georgia, uh, last year Democrats flipped the majority of Gwinnett County offices, capturing control of the county commission and the school board, while winning the county sheriff and district attorney's offices. All of the leadership posts in those offices and boards are now occupied by black politicians. However, according to this article from uh, Politico, Republicans in the state Senate set in motion legislation that could roll back those gains by doubling the number of mem members on the county commission and making the school board nonpartisan. So what does that mean? Well, what it means is they are, are taking a, a board uh, or the, the county commission in this case, which right now is overwhelmingly democratic and uh, minority uh, to wit African-American, and they're going to expand the number of positions on the commission so that they can, in, fact, in effect, get more Republicans elected or appointed to the board to dilute the authority of the existing board. Uh, basically, you know, I guess the, the analogy would be to the discussions we've seen in terms of uh, how the Supreme Court in this country might be addressed uh, 
by the Democrats, you know, court packing. This would be commission packing. Essentially weakening the position of the majority controlling interest presently on the board by expanding the number, making a new uh, number of minimums for quorums and for, you know, majority votes and so forth that effectively dilutes the presence of those uh, existing members. And, you know, they're, they're seeing this trend popping up not just in Georgia and in many places in Georgia, but, you know, the news is reporting and articles have come out about seeing this in areas of Texas, areas of Michigan, Pennsylvania, um, Arizona, you know, and, and all over areas of the country as one of the tactics that the uh, conservative slash Republican Party uh, in, in certain states is using to retain control, retain power, um, and, you know, minimize the gains that have been made by the so-called liberal or, or democratic uh, uh, politicians in those states. Now, again, Democrats, where they control, are doing the same thing. They're, they're both sides in, in their areas, in their backyards, both sides are playing the same game. And the problem that happens with that is, in effect, nothing ends up getting done. Nothing ends up getting accomplished because we are spending our time, our energy, and our money on these infighting battles, these, uh, these ideological uh, back and forths, and the, the key work that needs to be done by our elected officials ends up taking second stage to these battles for primary control of these committees, commissions, elected offices, state houses, and legislatures, and so forth. So, you know, this is, this is what we talk about on this show as, you know, being a reason why we need to be engaged, informed, educated, and learned about how the system is working, uh, how the mechanism of, you know, state government, local government works. You know, as much as we talk about the, the federal level uh, governmental process, and that's all well and good, the, the federal government has a lot of power and does a lot of things. But as I've said many times on this show, the local legislative uh, process, your local elected officials, your mayors, your city councils, your school boards, your sheriff's departments, your, your county corrections departments, your county boards. These are the, the real points of power in our country. Uh, we are a country where the majority of the actual governing power isn't in, at the federal level. It's at the state level. The states control the voting process. The states control the distribution of monies uh, from collected from taxes. The states control the school boards. The states control the health systems and the emergency response systems. All of the key points of infrastructure that intersect with our daily lives are not run day to day by the federal government. They are run day-to-day -day by state and local 
elected or appointed officials. And the more that we are engaged with those people at the, the state and local level, the better our influence uh, will be when we get to the federal level uh, because the power for the federal government is derived from the power of the state governments. You need only look at the Constitution of the United States and then go look at your state constitution, both of which are available online. You can go to the web, go to you know, whatever your state name is, .gov, and uh, search for you know, state constitution, and it will be there ready and available for you to review and read and learn. And here, here's the thing. And if there's a takeaway from all of this, from what I have just been talking about for the last few minutes, um, that I would hope each and every one of you would take away, would learn from this. Here's the thing. We oftentimes focus on the actions and outcomes uh, and you know, battles and all of the things that go on in Washington, D.C., and, you know, while those are important, while it does impact the overall direction that our country as a whole moves in, the more we focus on what happens in Washington, D.C., the less we are focused on what happens in, you know, your state capital or your city and town or your county seat. And as I've said, that's where the real rubber meets the real road. The federal government doesn't run your local school system. The federal government doesn't run your local hospital systems or your local fire and emergency systems. Do they set some, some boundary rules and regulations in those areas? Absolutely. But day to day, those agencies, those entities are run by locally positioned people, either locally elected by you, the citizens, or locally appointed by people that you, the citizens, elected, i.e. your governor, your state legislator, your county boards, etc. You vote to put those people in office and they in fact turn around and appoint the people who do the day-to-day -day work of making your school system work or making sure that your roads are plowed in, in and after a snowstorm or making sure that your police department is adequately funded and supported, etc., etc. So, you know, while, as I've said, it is important for us to be mindful of what goes on in Washington, D.C., we cannot afford to take our eye off of what is happening it in our local states, in our local cities and towns and communities and counties, etc. Uh, these are the important places where serious work that impacts our lives every day gets done. And we need to make sure that they, that these people, our elected officials at this level, are hearing from us on a regular and routine basis. So that that's where uh, this is going that's where we've got to be more focused as we you know wind our way toward the midterms in 2022 there will be a lot of local level elections that are going to occur 
We need to pay attention to those. We need to get engaged with those. Uh, if there are candidates that we believe in, we need to support those candidates. We need to get out and campaign for those candidates that think as we think uh, and that carry the ideas that we believe in uh, forward to get those into the system. So that's our call to action for that level. And, you know, just be aware of what's going on at your state level. As it said in the uh, article that I've been referencing, uh, and this is a quote from that article in Politico, uh, the practical effect of these changes that are going on in Georgia would be to dilute Democratic power at the moment the party has taken control. Even with newly installed Democratic majorities on both boards, their decisions will require buy-in from new members who would likely re represent largely white and Republican areas if the number of seats on these commissions were expanded. So, you know, what is happening and something that we will see you mark my words you will see this occur in other states around the country is that these panels will be expanded and the influence and and effect of these uh you know democratic majorities where that's the issue or these republican majorities where democrats control uh will be diminished and you know as a result uh, things that may not be uh, in line with the majority of people that reside in that jurisdiction will in fact become the law of the land in those jurisdictions because of who's sitting on those commission panels. So, you know, keep your eye out, keep your ear out, stay informed. And that seems like a, a good segue into our fourth story. Uh, and, you know, what this one involves uh, as I said, segues out of the Georgia situation somewhat. Uh, what we have is a news article that came out of Politico uh, over the weekend that said um, that the Senate has passed a one-time loophole on Thursday to empower Democrats to raise the debt limit on their own, a major step toward warding off a mid-December economic fallout. So what that means is if nothing had been done, uh, the U.S. would have essentially run out of the money needed to pay our already existing bills, to pay the debt that we already have created. Put another way, it, is, it would be the equivalent of your bank account running out of the money you need to pay your mortgage, your car payment, your credit cards, your food bill, your utility bills, to pay all of the, the, the bills uh, uh, as part of your existence. So the argument that's been going on over the past uh, six months, or actually over the past decade, uh, has been you know these, these continuing resolutions, or CRs, as you'll hear them described, uh, which basically put a little bit of money in the kitty to pay the bills for a period of time, moving it down, you know, downstream uh, so that, you know, the thinking is that when they take it back up again in three months or six months, they'll all be in a better mood or whatever and can work in, a, in you know, some level of a bipartisan fashion to put uh, a, a legislation in place that, takes care of paying 
the, the debts of the United States of America. Uh, that, has not, that has not worked out smoothly in a very long time. Um, as I think back in, in my lifetime, um, I think there has been one time since, you know, since I was born, since the 50s, that the United States has had a law on the books that paid its debts as it went so that debt ceiling wasn't an issue. But again, back then, uh, you know, the debt ceiling was in tens of millions of dollars as opposed to this uh, current version of the bill, which would set the debt ceiling at $30 trillion. The mere fact that this is an issue uh, in and of itself is a subject for discussion. Uh, but the, the real deal is the debt limit is for expenses that we have already accrued. It is not about uh, paying down future debt that's going to be incurred. Uh, that will be dealt with with future debt ceiling legislation, etc. But, you know, oftentimes people will get confused and think that when the, the congressional leadership and the president and these people are talking about, um, you know, raising the debt limit, it is raising uh, the amount of money that we can spend on things tomorrow and beyond. When it really is about raising the limit on the funds that we need in the checking account, if you want to think of it that way, to pay our existing bills. So, you know, the, the, the money's already been borrowed and spent. This is what we have to pay in order to pay back those loans. Um, but what's, what's interesting about this is that in, for this one single time, the bill that has been uh, crafted by Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer with the concurrence of Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell uh, is unique because there has been such a, a heated and pointed debate over the debt ceiling, over finding some kind of bipartisan way to address it. Uh, and, you know, there, there's been discussions around uh, dealing with the filibuster and trying to find a bipartisan solution. What ended up being agreed to with this legislation was that the Republicans agreed to let the Democrats solve the problem this one time. So rather than try and, and pull together a bipartisan coalition, the Republicans have stipulated that they are okay with the Democrats uh, voting on and, and taking care of this debt ceiling uh, within their own uh, party voting process. So by doing that, it does two things. One, it allows for the measure to go forward in a manner that doesn't uh, risk the United States government defaulting on its credit. And two, it also eliminates the need for it to be a 60 vote threshold in that it can be done with a simple majority, that is 51 votes will, um, will uh, pass the, the debt ceiling 
limit raising. So, you know, that in itself, you know, is a, a singular moment that is worth looking at and, and thinking about and studying a little bit. So the idea is that in this one specific case, the Senate agreed to open a window uh, of possibility in the filibuster uh, so that it's not necessary in this particular case uh, to solve this very important and very critical financial issue for the United States of America. Uh, so, you know, kudos to, to the Senate for, for making this happen. Um, it would be interesting to see if there are other things that the two halves of the Senate could come together and resolve uh, in similar fashion. And maybe what we'll see going down the road is that this process will serve as some kind of roadmap or will serve as at least uh, a, an example that can be held up to say, see, on this occasion, when we needed to get this done, when it was important to do so, this was how we solved the problem. Why can't we do this again with, you know, fill in the blank with other critical uh, United States problem that needs to be addressed by the full Senate? So uh, it, it's an interesting thing. Uh, it is worth digging into. The article I was reading is in Politico, and it came out on the 9th. There are plenty of other articles and news sources that were talking about this. It is worth a read to, to see how this agreement was arrived at, to see what both sides are saying, and perhaps to use that in your conversations with your elected officials uh, in, in kind of a, see, you did it here, why can't you do it there kind of conversation. Part of what, as we always say on this show, digging wider, digging deeper, being informed, educated, and active. So reach out to your, to your elected officials. Uh, kudos to them, especially if your elected officials are Republicans. Give them some credit on you know, working this solution. Let them know that you approve of it. And perhaps that will work so that we can see more of these occur over time. So hopefully on that good note, we're going to end our show for today. I want to thank each and every one of you for listening. As always, I appreciate your tuning in. Uh, I hope that uh, you will stay uh, tuned in and, and keyed in to Fired Up right here on WJMSRadio.com, where radio is reimagined. We have some exciting things coming in the new year, and please, you will, you will not regret um, not, not tuning in to, did I do that right? You will not regret tuning in to WJMS radio, uh, as we go into 2022. So in, in all of that, please, everybody stay safe, get vaccinated. And I look forward to talking to all of you again in seven days.
this message wherever you stand I'm calling every woman calling every man we're the generation we can't afford to wait the future started yesterday and we're already late